0: Welcome to of History Buffs and Bean Devotees. With the ceiling boom hitting its straps, many milestones in Antarctic exploration came at once. This week, we concentrate on the efforts of Nathaniel Brown Palmer, the first American to make their mark on the maps and charts. This will require some backtracking to Bellingshausen and Smith's discoveries, leading to Palmer meeting Bellingshausen at Deception Bay at the end of the Russian Antarctic explorations aboard the Murney and Vostok as recounted at the end of episode 6. Edmund Fanning, who left us a glowing account of Nathaniel Palmer's meeting with Bellingshausen, was, himself, sealing the seal population to local extinction off the southern tip of South America between 1797 and 1812. At which point, the newly achieved dearth of seals prompted Captain Fanning to prompt U.S. President James Madison to commission him for an exploratory voyage south in search of new islands on which to seal the sealing deal. The expedition was cancelled by the eruption of war with Britain. In 1819, on hearing scuttlebutt about Smith's discoveries, Fanning quickly sent a new ship, the Hercilia, south under the captaincy of James Sheffield. Nathaniel Brown Palmer, Connecticut-born second mate on that expedition, was left ashore on the Falkland Islands to hunt up a supply of meat for the ship's crew while Sheffield explored the surrounding waters. Palmer was visited there by the British crew of the Espirito Santo, whose captain claimed they were headed to plentiful sealing grounds, but declined to give any details. Sheffield reacted to the news of the Espirito Santo by immediately following in its wake. The Hercilia joined the British ship in what is now known as Hercilia Bay, on Rugged Island, where the Brits were welcoming, announcing that there were seals enough to go around. The Hercilia departed with near on 9,000 pelts. Converting the 22000 US dollars this cargo was then worth into present-day values would date the podcast more than my colloquialisms, but it was definitely worth risking ships and lives for, because Fanning fitted out four ships, including the Hercilia, for a second voyage. The 21-year-old Palmer was placed in charge of the fleet tender, a 14-metre, 45-ton sloop called Hero. Palmer met with Captain Benjamin Pendleton on a fifth ship, the Frederick, on reaching the Falklands, and advised him of the Herzilia's discoveries, as instructed by Fanning, and the Frederick joined the fleet. Also at the Falkland Islands at the time were James Waddell, aboard the Jane, and George Powell, aboard the Dove, also intent on sealing, and both to make their own contributions to the exploration of the area. Pendleton sent Palmer south on an exploratory foray beyond Deception Island, upon which he sighted what is now known as Trinity Island and the Antarctic Peninsula, while dodging bergs and encountering dense pack ice. His explorations discovered several seal colonies, and a sheltered inlet at the head of what we now know as the Macfarland Strait, which became the fleet anchorage. Shore camps were established in the Yankee Harbour, often comprising dry stone walls set against a rock face, with a hearth in one corner, sailcloth for a roof, and seal skins to plug the draughty gaps. Enough to keep the weather off, but not so labour-intensive as to take much time from the seal hunting. Hunting kicked off while Palmer took the hero around Livingston Island and it's thought, southwest as far as 66 degrees south. No one's sure, because the log doesn't record where the hero went. It was on the return from this cruise that Palmer came across the Myrni and Vostok, as they completed their circumnavigation of the continent. The claim that Bellingshausen suggested the land that Palmer allegedly sighted be named Palmerland gets no mention in the Russian's journal, but Palmer assures us this was the case in accounts he made many years after the voyage. The scenario is rehashed in Fanning's work, but he was on the other side of the world at the time, and likely wrote with Palmer's version of events in mind, and with an eye on American primacy. In his account, Bellingshausen, allegedly chagrined at Palmer's achievements relative to his own, allegedly proclaimed, "'What shall I say to my master? What will he think of me? Be that as it may, my grief is your joy. Wear your laurels with my sincere prayers for your welfare.' I name the land you have discovered, noble boy, Palmer's Land. Those pre-revolution Russians and their florid ways. I blame their Cyrillic alphabet. With 30 American and 24 British sealing vessels working the area that summer, competition for the resources lolling unconcernedly on the beaches fueled several angry encounters. By New Year's Day, The Fanning-Pendleton fleet collected over 21,000 SEAL skins, depleting the SEAL population more than any other interest and justifying a return visit the following summer, this time with Palmer in command of the sloop James Munro, with which he made more exploratory voyages. As the SEALing boom came to its biologically inevitable end, Palmer turned his hand to commanding ships with express cargoes, his ideas and designs contributing to the emergence of clipper ships, the Lockheed Starlifters of 19th century seas, carrying more cargo at greater speeds than any other class of sail-powered vessel. Whether the account Palmer gives of his meeting with Bellingshausen is accurate, American maps and charts of the area refer to the big lump of geography that other nations call the Antarctic Peninsula as Palmer Land. With little else to base territorial claims on, named for the currency of credibility in Palmer's day, and the tradition of naming something and ignoring the names conferred on that thing by others carries on to this day. Tales of cilia planks on which to base a toehold in the cold lie in the office. Just wait. The research vessel Nathaniel B. Palmer, a 94-metre-long, 6,000-ton icebreaker, chartered by the USA's National Science Foundation, carries Palmer's legacy into modern Antarctic activities, providing a platform for high-latitude research programs and forging a path through the sea ice in the Ross Sea, through which the following year's supplies can be shipped to McMurdo Station by less ice-capable vessels. While all of this was going on in the Southern Ocean, Smith's discoveries on the behalf of Britain, see episode 9, were the source of much discussion in Washington, D.C. A U.S. representative in Valparaiso wrote to John Quincy Adams, then Secretary of State, petitioning that he send a U.S. Navy vessel to explore the area in which Smith's explorations focused. Ship owner James Byers cited British sealers preventing American sealers accessing the seal populations of South Georgia as justifying the establishment of American bases on any new discovered lands arguing that occupancy led credence to any territorial claim he planned sending building materials south with his sealing ships for use in establishing permanent settlements. He also called for a naval vessel to be sent south to ensure American settlements couldn't be easily expelled by British interests. John Quincy Adams agreed such settlements would be in America's best interest and convinced President James Monroe of the plan's merits but as no suitable frigate was available The sealers were left to fend for themselves as best they could, and no settlement eventuated. It would be many years before the USA made good on plans to make permanent settlements in the south, but the late start didn't prevent them doing so at a large scale and in prominent positions. More on this in later episodes. Concurrent with the first Fanning Pendleton venture was the exploratory cruise of the Cecilia, a tender to the New Haven sealer the Huron, under the command of Captain John Davis, and operating from Yankee Harbour. The log of the Huron, only rediscovered in the 1950s, recounts a landing at what later became known as Hughes Bay. If accurate, this stands as the earliest known landing on the Antarctic mainland. Momentous stuff, but as little is known about John Davis, and with him outshone by the charismatic and well-documented antics of Carsten Borkrevink, in 1895, the event receives little attention in most histories. Days before Bellingshausen's Vostok and Murnie arrived, Davis coordinated the crews of nine sealing vessels preparing to confront the British sealers on Livingston Island. The Brits weren't sharing their seals and several times prevented American parties making it ashore. When the 100 Americans faced off against the 60 British sealers Deaths were only prevented when the Americans noticed the once seal-covered beaches were no longer worth fighting for. The area in which the alleged landfall took place remains the Davis Coast, though in terms of cartographic legacy, another John Davis will outshine this one in the 20th century. Six ships were wrecked in the area that summer, and 11 members of the crew of the Lord Melville their ship being unable to collect them from their hunt, possibly became the first people to winter in the area. They had to wait until the next summer to be rescued from King George Island. At 62 degrees south, they were above the circle, but that doesn't mean they were enjoying coconuts and surfing the winter months away. 62 degrees south is still a seriously cold, stormy climb, and their miserable winter warrants noting as a significant event. I've not kept track of who I thanked, so this week it's Tom and Cecil of Cognitive Dissonance one of my favourite podcasts glory old fellas